We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Coming down in three, two, one. Hey, this is Michael Rothstein, host of The Michael Rothstein Show, and I just want to thank the guys over at The Pride Podcast for allowing my podcast to come over and hang out on their feed for an episode. Hopefully you like what you hear of The Michael Rothstein Show. We do a lot of player interviews, both retired players and current players, along with talking to difference makers around the league, just about football and overall about life. If you like what you hear on this show, Come check us out over at the Michael Rothstein Show, where you can download or subscribe or listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and hope you enjoy the show. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, Check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Quarterback. Stafford, step it up. Going left side. Watch Calvin. And so got him. Oh, baby, that was a rocket. And it's picked up. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Michael Rothstein Show. I'm your host, Michael Rothstein, and as always, this episode is sponsored by Bet Online. Go check them out. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE and get your welcome bonus. So, yeah, the draft is over, free agency's done, and kind of the last piece of put together Lions news dropped over the weekend and that is that Jared Davis the linebacker is not getting his fifth year option so now 2020 is a contract year for him and let's be honest here this is not a shocking move while Jared Davis has been a very good locker room leader for the Lions he's been a team captain he has been a Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn favorite after all he's the guy that 
when the Lions, about a month ago now, I guess, were looking to raise funds from players for the empowerment plan to get surgical gowns and masks, which the empowerment plan was going to start to make. Matt Patricia looked to Jared Davis first in order to put together that sort of fundraising opportunity for players. So there's no doubt Jared Davis is a great community and locker person. But on the field, Jared Davis, even though he started 41 games for the Lions, has struggled. He They really haven't been able to find a true role for him. He hasn't been good in coverage. He gave up over 70% completions last year. He hasn't been great against the run. And maybe where he's operated best has been as a pass rusher or a delayed pass rusher coming out out of the middle. And when you look at how the Lions roster is constructed right now with the drafting of Jelani Tavai last year, with the addition of Jamie Collins and Reggie Ragland in free agency this year, even the drafting of Julian Okwara last month, all of a sudden it became tougher to figure out where Jared Davis would play in this linebacker core in the future. And that to me was a signal that maybe they were moving on from Jared Davis or at least thinking about moving on from Jared Davis after this season. And that seems to be what's going to happen now. Of course, listen, Jared Davis could play well or play well enough and the Lions could decide to bring him back and they just didn't want to bring him back on a $10 million contract for 2021. But players generally notice when (laughs) their options aren't picked up for a season, and that generally doesn't send a great sign as far as being wanted in the long term. Now, Jared Davis hasn't talked about any of this, obviously, but it is worth thinking that this could be Jared Davis's last year in Detroit, and still, I'm not sure where they play him this year. I expect that we'll hear some potentially from Matt Patricia this week as the Lions offseason workout program is potentially getting started. And maybe he'll be able to address and answer some of that when he talks. But when you look at it on the face, in the maybe he plays in the middle, but they have Tavai there. And Tavai is maybe more of an ascending player. And he's a bigger linebacker like the Lions want. They brought in Reggie Ragland. Well, Ragland could be a depth linebacker. He is a very good run stopper. And that's what the Lions are looking for in the middle. Jamie Collins could play in the middle, he could play on the outside and take Christian Jones' place, or he could end up being an edge rusher. So if you move Jared Davis to edge, you know, more that kind of Devon Kennard spot after they release Kennard, well, okay, he'll be competing with Okwara there, and he's a rookie, and he's maybe more explosive than Jared Davis, and he's bigger than Jared Davis or Collins, who's shown he has better pass rush capabilities. So maybe they can find a place to put Jerry Davis where that light comes on in season four, and it's certainly possible. And again, from a person perspective, they absolutely love him, but this should not come as a surprise that his fifth-year option was not picked up. So just want to give a little bit of information and background on that before we get to today's guest. That is Travis Swanson. And that will be coming up right after this break. Just a couple things about Travis. Travis, obviously, he and I have been going back and forth on trying to set this up for a while. He and I have been in pretty good contact since he retired last year. And, yeah, I think it's an interview you will enjoy. He opens up a lot about his career, about how he decided to retire one morning at 2 a.m. and what led that 
led to that and so much more that I think you'll get something from it, including what was probably one of the more intense days of his life, which was the day that Graham Glasgow got drafted in 2016. And he'll explain why in the podcast. But uh, it's I think it'll open your eyes a little bit of how the business of the NFL works. And one last thing before we get to the podcast, which will come or get to the interview, which will come up right after this break, which is, listen, if you've been paying attention at all, you know, I've mentioned it a lot. If you have any money to spare, if you have any inclination to do so, check out A2 Neighbors. Uh, They're on Twitter. It's a2neighbors.givingfuel.com backslash COVID-19. What they're doing is they are collecting money to then get to local restaurants who then go and feed frontline workers in the Ann Arbor, Washtenaw County area. Uh, I've delivered some food for them. They're a very legit organization and... I encourage you, if you are looking for a way to help during this coronavirus pandemic, maybe consider helping out there. And we'll be back right after this break with the interview with Travis Johnson. With currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. You're missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, which, as I always say, I hope happens on July 4th. Go watch introductions to that on YouTube if you can find it. They're awesome. It's all open 24 hours a day. It's all online. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. And guys, looking to last longer, go a few extra rounds. Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use your promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Now, back to our show. My guest today on the Michael Rothstein Show was drafted by the Lions in 2014. He spent the majority of his career there before going to Miami and briefly the Jets. He played center. He is Travis Swanson. Travis, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Doing good. Appreciate you having me on. I know we've been kind of going back and forth for a little bit of time now, just keeping up as as life has unfolded for the both of us. But I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. So since you since you mentioned that, what has life been like for Travis Swanson? And for those that don't know, you're married. You have a you have a young kid. Like, what's life like in quarantine for Travis Swanson? Oh, well, great question. Uh, not much has changed for our quarantine lifestyle because we, you know, our daughter's 15 months old and she's been preparing us for the past 15 months for a quarantine type lifestyle. 
So to be completely honest, nothing has changed other than we're a little more protective when we go to the grocery store. <laughs> um, other than that, no, not much, but no, a lot, in all seriousness, a lot has changed. And uh, really the past year, mainly, um, you know, obviously going back to 2019, or uh, actually I finished the 2018 season with Miami and didn't have any inclination whatsoever thought of retiring um and obviously emily my wife was pregnant with kendall and kendall shows up um january 14th and it was i remember being in the hospital and she got here at 141 in the morning and it was this thing where when i saw her and it was it was almost as if like god or something was kind of talking to me and saying you know what you should really kind of reevaluate and reconsider this whole thing and just because i've always been maybe to my own demise at times, a, a planner of, of sorts. And I always try to think about, you know, kind of the future and what, what's ahead of us and what do I think is ahead of us and how can we be prepared for that? Um, you know, there was just stuff that I was at that fork in the road in my career of, you know, I could, I could stick in this for another three to four years and, you know, you have no one has any idea what it's going to look like. Um, or, you know, I'd gone five years in, I have all my benefits, I have everything. Beautiful little girl just got here. Let's try to, you know, let's just see kind of what life has in store for us outside of this. You know, I had done a lot of things that I wanted to do. Um, and it, it was a sort of perfect storm of things that kind of fell into place. And it was something that Emily and I kind of, you know, we, we thought about and talked about every scenario, different kind of scenario for the, you know, next three to four months or whatever it was. And just internally in me, everything kind of kept pulling me back to retiring. Um, even as much as it hurt for me to accept that, I just, I couldn't fight it. And it was something, it was hard, very hard in the beginning, that first month. Um, you know, you always hear about people and athletes in their transition out of sports and everyone has their own ways that they deal with stuff and cope with stuff. And everyone's is, you know, some are shorter than others, some are longer than others. Thankfully, mine wasn't terribly long with my, that, that phase you go through of kind of who am I sort of thing. Um, but no, and that's, so went through that whole process and we've, uh, a lot has happened since then, but we're, we're extremely happy. And uh, I mean, life can really be better other than the fact that we're trying to dodge this invisible thing, trying to, uh, trying to get it, everybody. So, all right. So just to backtrack here. So you made the initial decision to retire at 1.41 in the, or at like 2 a.m. one morning, like when you see. It was probably, probably anywhere between 1.50 in the morning to 2 a.m. Probably. Are you having like a fever dream? <laughs> like at first you think like, this is a fever dream. This is just like, I'm impulse. I'm seeing my daughter, I'm impulse buying, retiring, because like, that's like, you know, there's always the talk of like, you don't make decisions after midnight. Nothing good happens after yeah. midnight. Obviously, yeah. so for you, something great happened after midnight, but something you also made phenomenal. a life-altering decision. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it was something, it was, it was the strangest thing. And that's what I told Emily. Like, it was, I saw her and I just, you have all this just flood of emotions and people that have, that have had children, especially your first one, they, I, you know, they would probably understand kind of where I'm coming from because it's so hard to describe, but it's, you know, your priorities and what you, what you value and things of that nature. I mean, it literally changed, changed like that. Like 
in a heartbeat. And so I legit, that's how it went down. I saw her and then I just started, you know, you're holding her and all these things are just going through my head of like, you know, I want to be here later on in life and not saying that's the thing is I came to realize that, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there right now with football and, you know, the, uh, the physicality of it is it's a very brutal sport, but in terms of, you know, the, what media is saying in terms of uh, what it does to your body and stuff like that. And I think it's, you know, you, you have to, you can't be naive to be like, well, no, it's not, you know, there's nothing there. Like, yeah, like physical, the football is a physical sport, you know, it's going to take the toll on your body. But for me, it was more of, I wasn't, I didn't know if football was taking years off my life, but I knew it wasn't extending it hundred percent. So I was like, in that sense, I said, I want as much time as possible with her and what, however many other kids we have down the road, whenever that happens. So for me, that's what, that's what kind of got that going. And just from legitimately just seeing her after she was born, got all that in my head, just kind of going. And I remember I told, I told Emily, she was actually still hooked up to everything in the bed. I said, Hey, I think I need to retire. That was, that was probably at 2 a.m. Um, and she was like, well, like, Hey, why don't we, let's, let's just, let's get out of the hospital first before we kind of, you know, make any rash judgments and stuff like that, which, which then that led into us for the next, you know, few months kind of talking about every different scenario and just thinking about everything like what are we going to do sort of thing and like I said everything kind of kept pulling me back to retiring retiring and it was one of those things that it was it was a it was a leap of faith essentially um but the thing is is this band-aid that that guys have it's going to get ripped off at some point now whether you can control in what sense who doesn't it's either you do it on your own terms or someone else is going to do it for you in the sense of a doctor telling you you just can't you can't do it anymore or a team saying you one you're not good enough or two you're too old yeah and one of the things that i wanted to do and we wanted to do before getting into the nfl was you know we have no idea what what this career is going to look like but I'd love to walk with, like, I want to be the dictator of when it ends. Now, whether that's one year or five years or 10 years, whatever it is, I have no idea. But I want to, I want to be the one that calls it and not leave it in someone else's hands. So you said that going into your rookie year when you're drafted in the third round. Like, that was, you and Emily talked about that going in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was something, it, that's the thing is I didn't want this I had heard things before from guys that I know that had gone into it that, that said, you know, this, this, this is a business. Do not get this wrong. Then even from going through it, there really is no humanizing factor in what I used to do and what the NFL is. And as bad as that might sound, that's just the truth. You're, you're a product and stuff like that. And from everything I heard is that a lot of guys will get just, chewed up and spat out more times than not. And I said, I just don't want that to be us just because there's a lot of life to live after whatever this is, whatever this career is. And we're going to, I mean, we're going to, 
you know, God willing, we're going to make the most out of this because this is a very short opportunity that we have here. But there's going to come a point where I would like to make or we would like to make the decision when we want to walk away as opposed to putting that in someone else's hands. Did you feel like you were maybe toward the end there because you had gone from Detroit to Miami and New York in a very short span. Did you start to feel like maybe I'm starting to get chewed up? Like I'm not fully chewed up and spit out, but um, to use your analogy, but I'm start, it's starting to get chewed up a little bit and I don't want to be that guy who's on like six teams in six years. No, no, I don't think it was that. It was just more of uh, legitimately, like I completely before January 14th, 2019 was gung ho on free agency. Let's freaking go. And then January 14th came and that completely changed real quick. You know, I didn't, I didn't view myself in that sense of, of, Hey, I'm about to be a journeyman or anything like that. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with that. It was just, you know, some things in Detroit didn't work out the way that everyone wanted to. So then that kind of took me in this path of going, you know, to the, to the Jets for however many months that was. And then that was more of a mutual parting of the ways to then going back down and landing with Coach Washburn, who obviously was with me in Detroit and yeah. brought me to Detroit. So that was just a, a complete fit right there and made the most sense. And I, and I walked away from a pretty good deal from – from a team that kept calling in 2019 kept calling, kept calling, kept I just, and that was, it was just the point of where I was just like, you know what, I'm fine. And that, and honestly, that is a big reason as to what I'm doing now yeah. is because I had that option to be able to be like, you know what, um, I'm good. We'll get into what you're doing now in a minute, but I want to ask one more question because you, you mentioned obviously that time of like figuring out after that every player goes through. Sometimes it lasts years and people who've listened to this show religiously have heard me talk to some guys like Lawrence Jackson who have said, yeah, it was a massive process for me and even Andre Fluellen. Did having Kendall help that? Oh, 100%. My, my wife, like – is I can't I'm sorry if you hear my bulldog oh, bark. It's, it's fine. Like, we love dogs here on the show. She <laughs> somewhere. Um I mean no both both of them I couldn't even imagine what that would have been like without them. You know, and it's it was something that I even thought about that. And honestly that is what kind of got me out of that phase. It lasted for me probably one month almost exactly. And at the end of that month, I then realized, as opposed to being sad that this was over, like, like, look, like my life is not bad. Why am I acting like this? You know, it's like you got to do what you wanted to do. You got to walk away on your own terms. You have a phenomenal family and a loving wife and a beautiful daughter. It's like, why, like I don't, why am I sad right now? There's literally no reason for me to be sad. And I remember waking up and thinking that one day, just because it was towards the end of a month of just literally waking up and being sad that football was over. And, I was, and then I just like kind of snapped out of it. I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is so ridiculous. Like, yeah, of course I'm going to miss football and everything that came with it, with, you know, the locker room and the guys and all that. But it's, then I got back into thinking the way of, you know, you got to walk away in your own terms and you got to make some great friendships with, 
people that are going to last a lifetime and stuff like that. So I'm very fortunate. And they, they were the reason that I was able to kind of get out of that pretty quickly. So what are you doing now for those that I know what you're doing now, but why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners what you're doing yeah. now? Because it's been about what, six, eight months, almost maybe a year that you've been doing it. Something like that. Yeah. It's uh. so what I'm doing, I joined the financial team that, has done my stuff the whole time and going back to old disability policies that I had in college. Uh, and that's how kind of, I got introduced to the main guy of it and based in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And we have, you know, our team is kind of spread out through a couple different States, um, you know, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, things of that nature. Um, and it's called athletes advantage financial. And we're, uh, that's our DBA and we're essentially with Northwestern mutual. And it's something that, you know, I got, passionate about just because of like I said that was the reason that I was able to walk away on sort of our own terms and walk away from that deal with another NFL team was because of how our planning was and you know every locker room I was in that there were there were guys in the locker room that had to stick in the sport for longer than what they wanted to just because they weren't for whatever reason, they weren't smart with their money or took bad advice or had bad advisors or bad investment, just whatever the case may be, that happened. And I don't believe that guys should have to put their bodies through that if they don't want to. Like, if you want to keep playing, then by all means, keep playing. But that's kind of what got me into this, just because I would love to give people that same option that I had, because it was a great feeling. Once I got through that phase of, you know, feeling sad that, you know, football was over and whatnot, then I'm just I'm so thankful and so grateful that we're in the position that we are just because there's these, these kids that come into the NFL, they have such a good opportunity in front of them. It doesn't matter if you're a first round pick or you go undrafted, you know, you have such a good opportunity in front of you and you can, you can turn just four years or whatever your career is into just something that can affect your family just for multiple generations if it's done the right way which is then why obviously i got into what i'm doing and the guy who has done you know our stuff that brought me on the team has just told me for years that he wanted me to come work for him and come work with him when whenever it was all said and done so it was just a it was a natural fit um we work with not only athletes i mean we have doctors physicians normal people we have executives at big companies and stuff and it's it's a lot of work but i love it and it's very rewarding for me did did you think you would go down that even though your advisor when you were playing wanted you to do this did you think you would go down that path or did you kind of once you got through that month of like woe is you kind of say mm -hmm. i know yeah this is what i want to do like when do you realize like that's going to be your post football future I always thought during my career, like, hey, that'd be pretty cool. You know, I get to help guys out and stuff like that. But then it's always one thing to be like, hey, we're in a good spot. We're in a good spot. We're in a good spot. But then you hit that point of like, hey, now it's like here we're really going to test out. Are we in a good spot? And to then have everything happen, Kendall Bourne having, you know, a multi-million dollar offer on the table and then to be like, no, like I'm good. I don't need that. That to me was then like, okay, like no, like we're we're fine. Which is then got into I, 
that's when the wheels got turning as to like, hey, I really want to do this. So during my career, I was like, that'd be pretty cool. This would be sweet every year. Obviously, giving it thought, and you're trying to think about like, hey, what does life after football look like? And always knowing that this was on the table, it's like, yeah, that'd be cool. But then having to like, you know, when you go through that moment of that line in the sand sort of thing, and then testing it and seeing how much it affected my family in a positive way, then I was like, yeah, okay, then that, that's it. You mentioned the the offer you had multiple times when you say it's a multi-million dollar offer. Obviously got to ask what team it was. And also were there like whether it was Emily or whether it was your parents or whether it was your advisors or were people like, why are you walking away from this? This is still whatever, you know, whether it was 1.1 or whether it was three or whatever it was, million dollars. No, my never had any, um, resistance of any sort from any of my Emily or my parents or agents or nobody just because everyone knows that I was I've always been that guy that's very calculated in things that I do and the reason I do things um, and it was something that obviously I've always had a very good support system around me um, and that's the thing is I, I want people to know and especially these young kids is you know, from the moment that a college football player finishes their last snap of college football, whether that's just during the season or during a bowl game, or whatever it is, and they want to go to the NFL, the moment they finish that last snap, they're no longer a football player. You'll never be a football player again. You're now a businessman. So I'm, I'm the CEO of Travis Swanson Incorporated. And everyone I put around me Everything I do is a business decision. Everyone I bring into my life is a business decision. Every, every meal I eat, whenever I work out, it's all business decisions. So that's how I structured my life in terms of who I brought in as part of my support system, whether that was, you know, agents or advisors or doctors or whatever it is. So people understood that about me. And, you know, I never, I say that to say, no one really questioned like obviously we talked about you know my reasonings as to why like yeah there were those kind of conversations but nothing no resistance at all just because they were you know they, they they were always on the same page as me that this is not football is not who i am it's just what i did and there was a little point especially that first month after where i that to me got a little hazy because initially you have to sit, I had to sit down and look myself in the mirror and just be like, who am I? You know, and it got to the point, I lost so much weight so fast because that first month I would look myself in the mirror and I would see just this big guy. So I'm like, well, you should be playing football now. You're this. So in my head, I thought, well, if I lose all this weight as fast as I can, then I won't view myself as that. So I lost a ridiculous amount of weight very fast, probably not healthy. And that didn't, it didn't fix it. <laughs> so then here <laughs> I am. I was just like, well, I mean, I lost weight. That's positive, but I still think this way. And then that's when maybe a couple of days later, um, I woke up and said, you know what, my life, why am I doing this? My life is not bad at all. Um, so I know that's kind of a long-winded answer. Yeah. Um, oh, in terms of the team, so it was the Eagles. Eagles kept reaching out. Um, 
and it was a it was a good deal. It was a very good deal, and it was something that going back to even when I talk to athletes now, the guys that I work with, it's you know imagine imagine someone comes to you and says we're going to pay you two million dollars for seventeen weeks worth of work. Not bad. And then imagine being in a position where you can be like, no, I'm fine. And that's not to say, and that's a, not to, not to, you know, brag or anything of that nature. It's just that that's what like your these four years. And I never had, and people know that I never had any of these. I didn't have a massive deal or any of that nature, but it's just the, the things that we did along the way were right. And we structured it in a way that's conducive to our lifestyle. And it's going to affect our kids and their kids to where we had that option to kind of walk away on our own terms. Um, which is, I mean, that's the whole reason I'm doing what I'm doing now. Um, so last year has really been, like I said, been kind of a, it's been a whirlwind definitely, but, but we're, we're in a good spot. Was it tough to watch football last year or? Oh yeah. At times, definitely at times. Um, yeah, I would have, I would have these moments, especially in, uh, you know, like July and August where I'd walk outside and it's almost like my body knew like, oh, it's like, it's this hot. So I'm supposed to like, I'm supposed to be practicing right now kind of thing. Or I'd look like, you know, uh, I'd wake up early, go work out on like Mondays and I'd be like, look at the clock and like, oh, I'm typically like in a cold tub right now. I'm supposed to be in a cold tub kind of thing. But I wasn't ever sad about it. Yeah, It was just like these like, these little reminders. And then that would take me back to, you know, all those times that I had with my buddies sitting in those cold tubs and just kind of looking at each other and we're just beat to crap and just, you know, have that dark humor and just like kind of just laughing at our situation just because we could barely move. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, there was definitely a lot of situations where, you know, I missed it. But then I look over and see kind of my family and see my little girl running around and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, we're, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. Um, so yeah, obviously everyone that kind of goes through those waves as you hear about, but, but thankfully for me, it was something that I could still emotionally control. Well, what were those cold for, because most people don't get what a cold tub experience is like on a Monday morning <laughs> after an NFL football game. I, I certainly don't, you know, what, what is that? like because like you said there's dark humor involved there like what what take me in like what that is like mentally not obviously and physically like being in that cold tub on the monday morning after you beat your body to hell for for a few hours honestly it feels amazing because the worst parts when you get up in the morning feels like you got hit by a train every monday that was another thing i liked is you know mondays this past fall i could get out of bed on my own like I didn't, you know, I could, I didn't have to wake up and kind of just like take five minutes and just be like, all right, how are we going to do this sort of thing? Um, no, the cold tubs, they, they, God, they'd help out so much. And then you do contrast, you know, going back from hot to cold kind of thing. Um, but yeah, and it was like, oh, I'm going to just have this somewhat dark sense of humor in terms of what we find funny and not funny. And it's just like everyone knows, especially, I mean, just the O-linemen in the room, you know, the job is just so physical and so brutal. So it's like if you embrace the nature of it and just almost kind of laugh at 
the idea of it without going too far. You know, obviously if someone's hurt, there's nothing to laugh about. Yeah. But, you know, um, we'd always be like, kind of like just sitting there in the hot tub and then, especially in Detroit. So you're in the hot tub, cold tub, and you had this window that went into the training room. You could see guys as they kind of walked by before they came in. And we all just kind of be sitting there and laying down and you just kind of see one of us open the door and just like kind of like start limping and, and they turn the corner we'd all just start cracking up because we all felt the same way yeah. and it was like oh there's hop in here this is gonna help don't worry it was just like it's this dark weird sense of humor kind of thing would you guys i mean would you like as you guys are wa- like watching them would you like be like all right that's gonna take that guy a minute to walk from here to there no i think he's gonna take three like you start making like wagers and how long guys are you to get that dark no no i didn't no we never We'd never get to that level. It's just be like, and you could typically tell if a guy like, that's the thing is you get when you when you deal in the world of pain, you can typically gauge it on someone else pretty good. And so whenever a guy would walk, you could judge by the kind of like limp he had, like, ah, uh, like he'll be okay, or oh, hey, that's kind of that's kind of serious. You know, you get really good at at managing and judging pain, as bad as that might sound. <laughs> So, like you said, on Monday mornings, there it would take you five. You'd wake up, you'd look around for five minutes. Like, what was the toughest Monday for you? And, and like, would there be Mondays where Emily would actually have to physically help you out of bed? No, there was never a situation where she physically had to help me out. It was just more of, I'm trying to think if there was ever one specific Monday that was tougher than others. No, I mean, I think it's more of at what part of the season are you in yeah. um you know you get towards the end of the season that that november december time frame is just it's brutal it really is it's just brutal and it's you know there's not there just comes a point where you you play a game on sunday and it's almost like sunday night you just know kind of what's in like what's ahead of you in the morning like you just know it's coming and it's just like you go to bed and it's almost like, you know, what all can I do to help prevent it from being its absolute worst kind of thing, which, you know, guys have their own tricks that they do to, to help manage their bodies and whatnot. But you always, at least for me, I'd always wake up Monday morning and it was always there. But that's the thing is that it's like, that's the job, you know, you're, you're doing something that is not natural for the human body to do. So you're going to be banged up and you're going to be sore and stuff like that. And it's on you. You're the professional. You have to find your own ways, whatever that is, because everyone's different to manage those pains and aches. Would Sunday night just, would you just be getting by an adrenaline still at that point? Is that why it didn't maybe set in till Monday morning or? Yeah, more times than not. A lot of it was adrenaline. A lot of it was, you know, you're tired, but your muscles, you know, typically take a little bit to get truly fatigued and that lactic acid to set in. So when you fall asleep, then that's when everything truly sets in. A lot of it depends on kind of the time of day that you play at too. And are you home or away? Are you factoring in a plane flight? You know, that kind of thing. So in a lot of it, I mean, those freaking Sunday to Thursday games are don't even – don't even get me started. It's so oh No, please go. <laughs> no, it's no, it's uh, there's a lot of players, former players out there that 
obviously speak against them and for obvious reasons it's hard enough to go sunday to sunday to uh to get your body ready and and the team especially when i was in detroit because we played thanksgiving every year you know they did they did a good job of trying to to get us ready for that because it wasn't like we were going from sunday to thursday night we go from sunday to thursday like noon one o'clock so that's another six hours that you're losing um and to their credit they did they did a good job of kind of you know we did walk through practices and things of that nature we weren't banging against each other so it was nothing that that they didn't do it was just the fact of you know this schedule to go from sunday to thursday is just like unbelievable and then to actually go through those games you know it was one thing where I was uh, let's see my rookie year no I played in that game my rookie year I think it was against the Bears yeah Larry was hurt no so I, yeah I played in that um yeah actually go through that too once you make it at the end of that game those Thursday games it's a phenomenal feeling just because you know you're gonna get especially if you win you're gonna get those three days off or whatever it is um but that's the thing you had to make you had to make it through it. Is that, is that what kind of gets you through it? Is you're like, all right, after this Thursday game, I'm gonna have like I'm gonna have a mini vacation for like three days. <laughs> I had to be able to spend time with my family. Like in in all seriousness, is that part of what kind of gets you through that Thursday game? Yeah, to some degree. I think everyone's different, you know. Obviously, being you're a professional, what you do, you want to go out and do your job to the best that you can, and you don't, you know. I never looked at it as a I viewed it as more of a, hey, you know, here are the circumstances, whether I agree with it or not, going from Sunday to Thursday, this is it. I can't change it or anything. So let's, let's, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do the best I can to get my body ready. And however good or just not good that is, I'm going to do it. We're going to go out and we're going to play and I'm going to try to win and do the best I can kind of thing. But just knowing that everything that comes along with that too in terms of the you know you're going to be sore and aches and in pain and stuff like that so it's this thing that you kind of have to you have to juggle within yourself but by no means or did i ever look at stuff as like oh i just need to get through this because well you know we have three days off no i I loved i love playing the game practicing and you know playing on sundays and thursdays whatever day we had we loved everything about Detroit and, and you know, our whole time in the NFL. I, there's one thing I want to ask you before we get into some of the Detroit stuff, which is you were talking about, obviously, when you get to the NFL, you're no longer a player. You're now Travis Swanson Incorporated or Von Miller Inc. or, you know, Larry Warford Enterprises, whatever it would be, right? Yeah. You think that the fact, and maybe I don't know whether you all have looked at this or not, but you're in a college town. The fact that now college players theoretically might be able to make money off of their own likeness here in short order potentially based off of what happened with the NCAA. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that might change how certain players should look at themselves in college? Should they look at themselves more like you did even maybe as a rookie early? Uh, I think that's still kind of – that's to be determined, honestly. I think – you know, I know the news kind of broke, what was it, yesterday or something like that about the NCAA and – their rulings and I still don't I think I kind of understand it that the school doesn't necessarily have any hands-on those deals or whatever it is the player has to go seek that out for themselves and whatever comes out that they can't there's a bunch of rules and whatnot they 
can't wear the school logo and stuff like that. I don't know. I think a lot of it, you know, for me, I think in terms of talking about this whole player likeness thing and what they allow and don't allow, you know, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a gray subject just because obviously the universities and NCAA in general, they're making a lot of money on players. That's a fact. Now, I think I agree with the sense of allowing players to, to go out on their own or companies to contact players outside the university to do what signings or commercials or what have you. I think that's a great thing. What I would like, what I always thought would be interesting is if, if a player wants to go pro and they want to make money, and this, I had this thought before the NCAA's ruling or whatever it was yesterday. Why don't, in theory, why don't they take the three-year governor off of players that you have to stay in school for three years before you go to the NFL? That's fine. We'll take that away and you can go and surpass that as long as you get your degree within that three-year time, time span. And it's not, I don't say that as in, I don't think people necessarily need degrees to have success in life, but I think the values that come of getting a college degree in that three-year time span for you to go make that money. And this was my theory as to if, if the NCAA was not going to rule in favor of the players in terms of making money off their likeness, then this is where I came up with my thought of, well, okay, what's another possible outcome of this take that three-year governor off if they get their degree they can go before three years and i think that would be good because that is not only just think about the values and things of that nature as to i mean to get to a four-year degree in less than three years you're gonna have to do a lot of sacrifices time management hard work things of that nature you're gonna build those values in that two two and a half years whatever it is and then you're gonna do your football career however long that is and then there's life after football and that's going to fall back and what your safety nets are going to be are those values that you created getting that degree and obviously we're with you in your career and then are going to last you the rest of your life but going back to that I was just thinking in my head what is another way for guys if they if they will if they want to go make money and they think they're ready what is another avenue if the NCAA is not going to agree to pay them for their likeness. So like, for, like as an example, so say Trevor Lawrence, so say Tre- Trevor Lawrence obviously didn't redshirt, but say Trevor Lawrence came in, redshirted, got his degree in two years. He could, at that point, he could leave for the NFL because the three-year governor would be there. But if he wanted to stay, so your point would be, if he wanted to stay in college, he should be able to make money at that point. Am I understanding that right? Or well, no, my 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 thing would say if you had the if you before the ruling yesterday with the right, NCAA, yeah, yeah, the pre-ruling yesterday, yeah. I'm saying okay, it's going to come down to well, the NCAA is going to rule in favor of players getting paid. And I said okay, if that happens, great. If it doesn't, what is another thing that can happen? And I said okay, well, what if players they want to make money? and they want to go to the NFL, as opposed to waiting three years if they would like to go in two years. If they get their degree in two years, then they can go, if they so choose. Okay, got it. So like if Trevor Lawrence got his degree, say, after this year, 
in your plan, he could have, he would potentially have been able to go and then every and then Joe Burrow went to have been the first pick in the draft and, and all that. <laughs> yeah, however, however you wanted to play GM or whatever. I just think, and that's, and that's not saying that that would be a, you know, how effective that would be. I have no idea. I'm just thinking of things yeah. that, like, what were That would be hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, what, I mean, think about all, you know, someone, you're going to get a degree in two years, you're going to, you're going to know how to work hard and like all this different kind of stuff. Not that you already don't know how to work hard with the football aspect, but it's my, the whole thing that got that going for me was, okay, I'm going to assume the NCAA is not going to side with the players just because they're not, that's the NCAA. So what is another, what's another way that guys could go get paid? Cause that's what this whole thing's about, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm not saying that if a guy doesn't, if he gets his degree in two and a half years, he doesn't have to go to the NFL. I was just saying, well, is there a way to get around that three-year governor? Got it. The okay. They put in like, what are what are options that they could have with that? Um, and yeah, that's just I don't know if it would be good or not. I just thought that could potentially be something. So, what was your time in Detroit like? Like, how do you view that now? Because you've been a few years out of it, and obviously you're retired out of it now. How do you view your time playing in Detroit? Oh, I loved it. I was, you know, my Emily, my wife, and I, we talk about it constantly how Detroit for us still feels like home in a sense, just because that was where our marriage really started. I mean, we got married March, you know, month or so, right before the draft, and then got drafted and went up there and. I mean, that's just, that's where everything started for us. And uh, we had such a good close group of friends there and we loved the city, loved everything about it. We had no idea what we were really going into in terms of the city and stuff like that. We knew nothing about it. And then we obviously got there and just fell in love with it, you know, and it was something that, you know, what I came into with guys like Domriola and Rob Sims and Corey Hilliard and all those guys. I mean, it was such a good room for me to be able to come into just because of that like kind of leadership and just how close knit those guys were and how close knit the entire room was you know once those guys left I tried to I tried to keep that sort of the same throughout my time there you know and it was something that you know the NFL is a it's a cutthroat business and there's a lot of things that that are really out of your control and you know kind of the reasoning that things happen you know, I, what really helped me after my second year was I stopped trying to figure out the why to everything. That really helped me. It really did. Um, not saying that I relaxed much more, but it was just for some reason that gave me a lot of mental clarity really going into my third year. When you say you, the why, of, you kind of stop worrying about the why of everything. What do you mean by that? Like the why you're running this or like, why is my coach getting on me for that? Or, I mean, obviously your second year was when there were a whole bunch of changes mid-season, like, or mm-hmm. why did Jeremiah get fired? And now Ron Prince, who's never coached offensive line is coaching me. Like, is that, or like, were those, were those all the it wasn't, different- it wasn't one specific thing. It was just more of, like legitimately the why to everything. I tried to understand my whole life. I've always tried to understand why things are and work the way they do. And so a lot of it was between, you know, I mean, whatever, what have you, I'd be, you know, you'd be talking to a guy next to us in the locker room, just kind of talking. And 
they go up and they get up and use the restroom and then they never come back because they just got cut. And so that, I was like, why, like why he's a good player. Why is it? And that's the thing is, you know, the NFL, it's just not, football's not necessarily football anymore just because you have money involved in it and there's a little bit of politics and stuff like that. So and I've seen a lot of good players that, one of very good players that got cut or traded for whatever reason, whether that's due to money reasons or contracts or politics or what have you. So a lot of that was, you know, I would stop and just stop trying to figure out why and just went out and tried to control what I can control, you know. Like you said, I mean, you, there were conversations where you had, where you were talking to somebody and they got up and you never, you, you didn't see him again. Nope. Was there one specific one that really, it kind of either hammered it home for you or you were like, wait, what do you mean that? What? <laughs> oh, um, you know, probably just my rookie year. I would say just seeing those guys, they call them the Grim Reapers, walking around the locker room and even even not even necessarily walking around the locker room, but you'd always see them just kind of like after like walkthroughs or something like that, just kind of, you know, there was like kind of cross their arms and post up, maybe like right outside the locker room, leaning against the wall, kind of, kind of like one eye around the corner, peeking in like that. And, you know, I remember when I first got there, I think like, who's like, I've never seen that guy before. Who's that? You know? And then you're just in a crowd, like crowd of us just would just walk through the hallways and stuff. And this, this guy would then just like kind of come around the corner and just tap someone. Like they try to be real discreet about it just because they don't want to, uh, for whatever, whatever the reasons are, they just want to be quiet about it. And then I remember seeing that stuff like that and just being like, Whoa, you know, kind of thing. And then that was kind of my introduction to the business side of it. My rookie year. Um, you know, but not not necessarily any one specific one. It was just having those moments of just like, dang, like I'll probably never see him again, kind of thing. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Well, did so did like Dom and Rob like kind of have to explain that to you at first what that was and be like, hey, nope, yeah, that's exactly what this is. Like, get used to it, kid. No, I would just ask like, oh, who's that guy, kind of thing, and they say, oh, he, he's so and so. He's essentially the Grim Reaper. He's the one that kind of comes down and is in charge of releasing guys so so then obviously that's you know that's who i associate with negative things in terms of the organization um so anytime anytime you know you see one of those guys around you'd be like well it's not gonna end good for somebody did you i mean would that be something that you were ever fearful of or because of where you were drafted and kind of what your contract was for the vast majority of your time at least in Detroit, did you not necessarily worry about that because you're like, well, my money's guaranteed for X amount of years? No, I never, I mean, I always assumed that they were going to cut me, I mean, any day. Like, I never took into account, like, I never thought about guarantees or signing bonus or anything of that nature. I always knew that, you know, it's, it's, it's however hard you work to get here, wherever here is you have to work twice and three times as hard just to stay in it and that's what I always tried to take the mindset of is you know today it's not you know a lot of NFL contracts people read like oh he's got a four-year deal 
for this. You know, well, it's not, that's not necessarily the case. You have the opportunity to make that. A lot of people, that's just, you have, you've, you've earned the opportunity to make, but now it's up to you to prove year in and year out that you're worthy enough to get a shot at making that the next year. You know, outside of those outliers, like, you know, the premier guys that get those big contracts with a lot of guarantees and stuff like that. Um, but no, I always, I always took the approach of, you know, the next week, next year, whatever it is, it's not, nothing's guaranteed, which is why I typically, I mean, I never really took a whole lot of time off in the off season, unless it was from surgery purposes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how I always viewed stuff. What's your best Dom Raiola story? Can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your, be- what's no, your best I mean, semi-family friendly Dom Raiola story? <laughs> I mean, Dom was just, Dom was one of those guys. And obviously I came in with at the tail end of his career. And he was a guy that, you know, I didn't really know a whole lot about him when I first got drafted, but then obviously you hear stuff and, and look up stuff. and like, Oh, this guy's been here for, 13 14 years or whatever like he's about to make my life hell it was like because i know i would have made some kids life hell if that was the case and then so that's what i thought was going to happen going into it and i was like you know what whatever he does however he wants to act that's his prerogative and he's going to do whatever the hell he's going to do and he didn't do any of that he it was complete open arms from the moment i got there there was never any never any hazing never any he was never pissed at me for whatever like there was none of that wasn't the guy was such a good leader became such a good friend of mine someone that i still look up to i mean you watch him the guy there's a reason he played so long was with one team the guys it was unbelievable at what he did um and when i think of dom i think of that I legitimately think of that, of me thinking before I got there, like, well, this year is going to freaking be hell. Um, getting in and talking with him and meeting with him, and it was just, it wasn't that at all. He was just unbelievable to me and my family. Was that weird going in as a rookie, knowing that you were realistically drafted to replace a guy who's been here for over a decade? Because, I mean, some guys get picked and, they're picked to replace a guy who's been there for three years or they're picked to compete, but whatever. Like you were literally picked to replace a guy who's been there for, like you said, 13, 14 years and everybody knew it. <laughs> I think I, I took the viewpoint of there's not a lot of him walking around. Not a lot of guys are a part of one team that started for 14 years for the same team. So I'm going to, you know, and I knew going into it, I was like, I'm the swing guy this year. Like, so I'm going to embrace that role in any way I can. And I'm going to learn, I'm going to pick his brain. I'm going to learn everything from him just because he's a, the guy's an anomaly. There's not a lot of him walking around. And for me to have this kind of resource, you know, whenever, whenever that baton gets passed, you know, I don't want to look back after the fact and be like, oh, man, I wish I would ask him about this. Or, hey, what, what about this scenario? Or how do you view this? Or how do you handle this kind of thing? So that first year, I tried to be just a complete sponge with him, you know, and, and think. Uh-oh. Baby time. <laughs> big angry. Um, sorry about that. 
No, you're good. Um, so no, and once I finally got in and realized, you know, he wasn't going to make my life like hell, then, then it was a, you know, I'm going to learn as much as I can from him, him, Rob Sims, Coach Wash, all those guys. It was, it was such, just that first year was such a good thing for me to come into. Was there more, did you feel because of that when after y'all lose in 14 and, you know, Dom, Dom doesn't come back, Rob doesn't come back. Like, do you feel more pressure at that point going into 15 because you were like, well, this is my job now. This is how this is going to go. Like, I don't know. Yeah, to some degree, I think I knew that uh, we were losing a lot of leadership in the room. And, you know, every year you have no idea what the turnover is going to be like, you know, it's, it's whatever the number is, 33, 35% roster turnover every single year. So every year brings something new, and you know that. Now, trying to step into that role of, okay, they're not bringing Dom back. You know, I still took the viewpoint of, well, this isn't, regardless if it was my position or not, I'm still going to have to fight for this with whoever they bring in, you know, because they could, I mean, free agency, draft, you have no idea what's going to happen. Nothing's guaranteed to you. Um, so every year I took that kind of position as to, well, this isn't guaranteed. We got to go fight for it kind of thing. And I knew that those, those guys, Rob and Dom and Slab and all those guys are leaving. So someone needs to kind of step up and do that leadership thing. And even though I was definitely younger in the span of the spectrum of NFL careers, you know, I tried to do everything I can just because the center is the kind of guy that runs the whole show on the field and off the field. Was there a point, because obviously, so 2015 starts off really poorly. Mm-hmm. When do you realize maybe that that's, that's going to be a rough year? And, and at what point do you say, oh, wow, like Jeremiah might lose his job? You know, you never think that someone's going to lose their job necessarily. And it was, I think, after that 15, I want to say after the Vikings game when they were at home. Because I think then he... Coach Lombardi, they got fired after that. And it was something that I think it was, you know, a lot of people want to put blame on one person or group or phase or anything of that nature. But, you know, the beautiful thing about football is it's, it is, I mean, it's the ultimate team sport. And I know that you hear, everyone hears people say that constantly, but it's just like, you know, for whatever reason, that year initially started off pretty rough for us. And it was, Every week, from what I remember, was something a little different in terms of why things weren't necessarily clicking on the offense. One week it was us. Maybe another week it was a scheme standpoint. Another week it might have been, you know, receivers or defense. Like, that was the thing. It was just this hit of just, like, was it necessarily just one thing? And unfortunately, we fell into that rut, and, and the business side of the NFL came out, and they had to make changes. And it was something that unfortunate to, to – see those guys get you know fired from their jobs I never wanted to see it no one ever wanted to see it but that's the thing is when you fall into those bad situations like that starting off one in six or seven or whatever the hell we were things are like changes are going to happen now whether that's player changes or coaches coaching changes that's for you know the, the front office and ownership to decide do you remember what that flight to London was like because that all happened that all came down if I if my memory serves correct like two hours before y'all boarded the flight to London. Yeah, no, it was, we played, played the Vikings that Sunday, then we're 
came in Monday and then had to like pack up a bunch of stuff and we're going get on that flight. I think we were leaving at like 9 p.m. to go to London and then yeah, a couple hours, few hours before guess the news kind of breaks and it was one of those things where you know it just it sucked just because I love Wash and I love Hef and Coach Lombardi and all those guys and to see that you know happen to them is not you don't want to see that happen to anybody and I was I mean that was a long flight that was a long it was a long season it really was I know that we won some games there kind of towards the tail end of it but it was just one of those things it was it was unfortunate and that was you know that's just it's it's one of those things every week that you try to learn something and then I learned a lot about myself and about that team and stuff at the end of the year when you do kind of that whole mental reevaluation process of just kind of what you went through and things that things that you might have done different or whatever it is everyone kind of goes through that mental checklist in their head was there like you said I mean part of what you learned maybe that season was not to ask the whys anymore which is kind of how we ended up back you know circularly on this path did that did that kind of time frame of like you know Lombardi and Wash getting fired and then y'all go to Kansas City and or go to London and get it it doesn't go well <laughs> at, at all wasn't good it was no not, very bad and then you come good. back and and Mart you know and Martin and and Tom are fired a few days after that while while y'all are on by does yeah. is that was that kind of two-week stretch what kind of told you hey all right I can't I gotta stop wondering why I just gotta kind of do what I gotta do that was the beginning of it definitely um just because yeah it seemed like everyone around us you know obviously they were fired and then everyone in the locker room was pretty tense just not really knowing what was happening or what's gonna shake out and then you got you know you gotta you know do your job and play the rest of the season and do the best you can but then you don't know what's going to happen at the end of the season. You know, who are they going to, who are they going to bring in? Who's the new front office and stuff of that nature. So that, that, that season in general was very stressful just because a lot of guys, there was so much just, we have no idea what's going to happen kind of thing. Did you, once you saw Bob, they hire Bob and then he starts to bring in offensive linemen, they draft Graham, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I mean, what's your, when you see them draft Graham, do you start to get, like the thought of your head of like kind of like maybe how you felt when you were drafted with Dom because he had been a center or because he was a guard center you're like I might be all right still like or is that when you're like okay I may not be long for here like when does that shift start happening because he worked so much on rebuilding that offensive line early yeah you know it was something that I'm trying to think how to say this uh Really, that that off season in general was tough. I finally had shoulder surgery after putting it off for two years, and then that helped out a ton. And then going into you get a whole new front office, and it's like you have no idea what they're going to do or what they're thinking, kind of thing. That was actually the uh, my my father in law, Emily's father, passed away in April of that year. I remember that? Um, then, so I remember Elton Moore who, you know, um, unbelievable guy. Um, we're working out in the weight room one one day. I think it was that Tuesday beforehand. Uh, or that Tuesday. Um, 20, April 26th, I believe. And I remember we were squatting and stuff, and Nash was a beast, and we were squatting like crazy. 
I remember finishing a set and kind of stepping off the side and all of a sudden, I mean, there's like just people, like guys, you know, full team in there, music's blaring and stuff. And I just hear my name just get just yelled. Like, oh, like I could distinctly hear it over everything going on. And I turn and it's Elton. Elton's got a phone and he says, you need to come here right now. So I'm like, okay. Emily was on the phone, you know, crying, saying, you need to come home now. Dad's not doing good kind of thing. So I, I don't even, I don't even shower. I just like literally grab stuff, throw it in the belt. Like whatever I have, just go straight to the airport kind of thing, fly home. Um, and I know that we've kind of talked about this before in that article that you wrote, which people listening, if you have not read that article, it is phenomenal. You need to go check it out. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I still had it. What is that thing you do? You can pin the tweets on your, yeah. on your Twitter. It's still there, still pinned. Um, that means a lot. Three, four years, five. Years, I'm not moving. I'm not moving, it, man. I'm keeping it there for whatever. If you ever put any weight in social media, pin tweets. Um, so no, then I, you know, I were flying back, and that was a long flight. I remember I had to go. I had to connect in Charlotte. I think it was because I was going to Little Rock. Yeah, connect in Charlotte. I was just long flight because I honestly had no idea what was going on. They just say, "Come, you need to come back now." So finally get down on the little rock and catch an uber i go literally from airport straight to um straight to the hospital and finally get there they have the family kind of in like a separate room and stuff and literally as soon as i get there still i had no idea what's going on nurse or someone with the hospital comes back and gets everybody and literally takes us back there where Emily's father was and it was essentially to say goodbye to to him um and it was, you know, it was something that that the whole series of events is going to be in, like, I'll, I'll remember that feeling and, and the look of everything for the rest of my life, just because it was such a moment for us. And, you know, we, we said our goodbyes and it was hard and, and he passed away that day. Um, and then that Friday, we buried him and then four to five hours later they drafted Graham on the same day that we buried him and so that for me was like a you want to talk about just a flood of emotion and it was like a lot of things obviously going through me at that point and just kind of what we went through and stuff and I didn't even really know what to think just because I was so, I was, I was torn between, I was so upset just because obviously we just lost my father-in-law and here I'm trying to, you know, be there for my wife and stuff like that. Then all this happens and then it's like I'm torn between just all these different sorts of emotions. And then, so then I, and then, you know, we finally get back and stuff like that. And it was, you know, and this is the, this is the NFL business. Um, I remember Bob Quinn was walking through the uh, locker room right after I got back and obviously Graham had gotten drafted and it was just like we kind of locked eyes and he never never really said you know anything and just kind of kept walking kind of thing and that was another one of those moments of this is a business kind of thing um so obviously had a lot of different emotions and then but the thing is is now you know I, I came to realize that I had I had no reason whatsoever to be mad at Graham. Like why like I, why would I ever be mad at like Graham? 
he was a guy that one is a very good player. And obviously given what he just signed with Denver, this guy's a very good player, very deserving of everything that has ever came his way. But he was just, that's a guy that was just kind of sitting there. He was just kind of like what I was when Dom was the center here. I'm waiting for somebody to call me. Graham wasn't calling the team. Yeah. So I was like, I had no reason whatsoever to be mad at Graham. And that wasn't the case at all. And it was just something that I had to filter through all my emotions as time went on and sort out and finally come to like, well, okay, obviously one new front office, they're drafting some alignment. No one's job is safe. And I never really viewed my job as safe from any year I was there. So then that added fuel to the fire of the, Hey, competition, like we need to ramp this up kind of thing. And then adding in the fact of like how everything unfolded with my father-in-law motivated me even so much more. But, and, but let me, I want to go back and say, I was never, I'm not, I wasn't mad at Graham. Graham didn't, Graham was just sitting there waiting to get drafted, you know, yeah. kind of thing. So I was never, I'm not mad at him kind of thing. I love him. He's one of my, one of my close friends and I'm happy for everything that ever you know that there's that just happened for him and going to Denver and we played together obviously numerous years and and still close friends so yeah. so I say all that to say you know that the competition aspect of things I think I, I, I get it from the standpoint of where they come from and whatever you want to call that patriot way or whatever you just competition in general is going to bring out the best of people dude so were you just, like you said, you weren't mad at Graham. Were you just mad at the world at that point? Because for those that don't know, you were incredibly close with your father-in-law. Like, you know, for the story I wrote, like you wrote his, you know, you wrote his initials on your tape, if I remember that right. No, it was on your wrist. Yeah, it was on your wrist underneath your tape every game after that. Like, were you just angry at the world and kind of maybe not like still getting over like mourning at that point? And like, it was just not grand. It was just like, I'm pissed at everybody. Like screw all of you. I was, I was, I was furious. I was furious at everybody almost to an unhealthy point. Not, not in a, you know, bad way. I was just, I was pissed at the world and it was almost as if like, okay, gloves are off kind of scenario. Like, you want to play by these kind of rules and you want to do this kind of shit. Okay. We can do that. But I wasn't mad. Let me go back on and say, I wasn't mad at Graham. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> Graham was just, I just, I know that people, you know, whatever they want, they're going to make of this, whatever. I just want to keep saying like, I was never mad at him and I loved the guy. It was yeah. just more of the business side of stuff is like, we had all these like life altering events happen and then this happened. So then I was just like, I was furious furious um to put it lightly but then i think that's what allowed me and also in terms of getting my shoulder fixed allowed me to play so good that year yeah i say what eventually got you past it past the angry at the world like angry at everything wanting to like you know punch the sky type thing you know i think it was more of finding a way to consolidate all that emotion and, and internally controlling it. Cause obviously in the, in the beginning of, you know, once everything kind of happened, it was, I mean, just 
I was, I wasn't going crazy. And I was just like, you know, my emotions were getting the best of me in a lot of different situations. And then it's, a lot of it was coming back and then going into those situations such as like OTAs and camp and the season and stuff like that of, of playing good and then finally getting my shoulder fixed and getting that rehab to where I was actually completely healthy finally. <laughs> and then just playing good was almost in the sense of like, like that I think for me was tied back in a lot too as time went on and playing good resulted in learning how to kind of control a lot of those emotions. You, like you said, I mean, you're playing good and then that, you know, then kind of the injury is hit for you at that point. Oh my God, there's a baby. <laughs> yeah. He snuck in. I know no. he's walking around. People <laughs> oh, are like just listening to this, you could be like, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. She's been walking for a little bit now. <laughs> so so like you like you said you're healthy you're playing the best maybe that you've played in your career and then injuries start to hit mm-hmm. at that point you're just like what <laughs> like you well, just start just one of those what were you saying sorry oh i said you just kind of start saying what, what the hell like <laughs> you know uh it's one of those things i don't know we've somewhat talked about it it's especially that 2016 situation is just something that very unfortunate the way it happened and I know you have no idea what I'm talking about (laughs) 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 Um, uh, you know it goes back to to just and I know I've said this before but just like there's a reason that things happen the way they happen and for whatever reason that situation and I know you still don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Oh, I know. I, I'm not. I, no. I was going to say you and I even talked before the before the podcast, and we're not. You know, you asked not. To yeah, I know. I know that it's just that that for what that whatever you want to call that happened and the way it happened, regardless if I understand it or don't understand it, has led me to now where I'm at today, and that's given me comfort knowing that maybe if that didn't happen, you know. I'd still be playing, which would lead me to something else. There's a part of me that truly believes my daughter came at the time that she did. And I had all these different emotions and stuff and kind of abruptly retiring. I think that was to save me from something else mm-hmm. that could happen down the road, you know, and whether that, whether that decision buys me more time with her, if it buys me another 30 seconds with her, that's, completely just I'm completely fine with that so you come back in 2017 at that point Graham's in his second year mm-hmm. you're in a contract year what's your mindset going into that season well I mean this is you know I think like everyone else that goes into a contract year you got to make the most out of it you know, and at that point, you know, going into year four, I had a really good routine in terms of, you know, rehabbing my body, maintaining my body and stuff of that nature and, and, and parts of my game that, you know, I know I still needed to work on what strengths I had that type of, like I was at a good point, but the biggest thing was just knowing, you know, there's a lot of, every year is big, but this year is obviously even bigger just because you have a, this is the end of that opportunity and you really have to capitalize on it just because that's what a lot of 
the free agent type deals are based on is really how you finish kind of thing. Um, so that was probably my biggest thought that I went to during that, which I think a lot of guys do throughout their free agent year. Do you think that the, at that point at the beginning of the year, that that's probably it for you in Detroit? Like, do you think that you're moving, probably moving on one way or the other at that point? No, honestly, I thought I was like, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, I said, I have no idea what, what upstairs is thinking. You know, they're, they're very, uh, they hold their cards close to their chest. And it was something I never really worried about, you know. And like I said before, we, we never wanted to leave. My wife and I, we loved it there, loved it, still do. And it was something that it was, you know, I'm going to do the best I can and we're going to see what happens and I'm just going to try to make the most out of this opportunity and really whatever happens happens just because it goes back to I can't really control what they think or what they want to do or what situation like I, I just can't do it you know so as opposed to trying to just freak out and figure out well how can I make them like me kind of thing you know I just went out and just tried to play the best I can you got you played you start eleven games, then you get hurt against Tampa, if I remember mm-hmm. that correct. And at that point, you know, and that, and that was diagnosed as a concussion, I believe. Correct. Mm-hmm. Like at that point, what go, what's going through your head? Really, just you know, obviously unfortunate. That's the why, you know, and it goes back to trying to think back to why, oh, why does this happen kind of thing? But why is this happening? And it's a mix of other things, kind of like the 2016 situation that I can't really get into. But um, I guess the best thing I can say is is I never understood why it happened. But now being being where I am now and everything that we've gone through since then, now I understand it. You know, and now I'm kind of at peace with with those things happening, even though I might have been mad that they happened then. Now there's a part of me that's like, well, for whatever reason, they did happen and they were supposed to happen. And whether that's I wanted it to or not, that's led me to here. It's led me to just the life that we have right now, which which is how I've kind of found my peace and everything. Did that did did that take you two years or so to really come to peace with that? Like, did it take past retirement to really? Yeah, just because that last year, the 2018 year, was kind of a whirlwind of, of sort of hopping around and stuff like that, and trying to figure out, you know, really what what's this year hold for us? Just because when I got to the Jets, as soon as I got there, I was just like, yeah, this ain't. I think it was a mutual kind of thing. Just like I don't necessarily, you know, just looking at kind of the team and how things were ran and the structure of stuff, you know. And then so I think I'm very thankful that they gave me the opportunity, but it was something that I was like, you know, I just don't see this working out kind of thing, just because it was a weird situation in general. So then, you know, getting to to camp and end of August and stuff like that, then finally finding you know, finding, connecting with Wash again down in Miami. It was like, well, this is great. And then being able to, to you know, stuff panned out and, and was able to, to, to play some games in Miami and then thinking, well, great. And then that leads into, well, here we go. Another 
free agency, you know, finish the year kind of thing. Here we go. And then as we've talked about. Yes. Now we go right to the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. And then resort, see, you know, beginning of podcast, but no, I think it did. I think it did. I think once we finally got back to Arkansas after, cause we had to wait in Florida for a little bit because Kendall had to become be a certain age before she could travel and stuff like that. So we had a little bit of time still down in Florida. Then I think once we finally got back to Arkansas and we're talking about finally, you know, these long-term roots and things of that nature that we didn't necessarily weren't able to talk about beforehand was then how I started to work that, that mental process of finding peace and everything. Just a couple more questions for you. First, do you regret not starting your band with Larry Warford? I know we were talking about that off. We were talking about that before, oh, before yeah. we started recording. So fill people in a little bit. Like, so yeah, we, uh, oh, Larry. So we, there's kind of two different sides of it. So we had, we did play together. They would always, you know, they'd come over to my place when we lived in Northville, or I'd go over to Larry's place. And he had a buddy, Will that would come up that was a singer and stuff like that. So we actually played together, but then we had, there's another side of it. So rookie reports, we always had a, every week, my rookie year, we had to do uh, a different rookie report over something that either Wash or the vets told us to do. So one week Wash said, Hey, why don't, why don't you do a rookie report on like a V what will be a VH one behind the scene. If you and Larry, had a band it was this like makeup band called the lucky ringos because we had we had a call lucky and ringo and you know that's how you put it together so then we did we i mean we put this whole presentation together of like and did like a fake photo shoot and stuff like that of and then i had this whole backstory of the band and you know it was it was really well thought out um and then we went in and when i did the presentation we actually brought our guitars in and played and we had we had obviously the whole line room we had the quarterbacks in there we had literally the entire offense just crammed in this uh the o-line room just like just people just everywhere and we had these like costumes on it was it was really funny um but no i i nothing ever came of the lucky ring goes outside of the uh, one 20 minute concert we played in the O-line room of the Detroit Lions facility. <laughs> what did y'all what did y'all end up playing? Do you remember the set list? Oh uh, yeah, I mean we came up with like so the songs we took uh, well-known songs but incorporated uh football aspects to them. So instead of like Hey there Delilah, we had Hey Calvin Johnson, wrote a song about Calvin. Um instead of simple uh, simple plan it was simple hands because offensive line handwork stuff like that so it's like songs like that and then kind of doing re- and Larry was a genius with the lyrics and stuff like that and how to manipulate those so it was it was a fun it was a fun project do you remember the lyrics still to any of them I don't know I wish oh. I did I could try to ask him uh I do not I was, oh, I was gonna try I was gonna try to get you to sing a couple bars here <laughs> <laughs> no I'm, I am not a singer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that would have been, oh, man. If that had ever gotten really public, that would have been amazing. I would have been, well, I know once we got done with that, I remember, I think it was a media session right after we did that. 
and I think like Joy Bell or Reggie or someone came in the locker room and was like talking about it. And I think media, someone in the media heard about it and then tried to ask us and we were just like, we don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. <laughs> so I don't think, I don't think people actually knew the extent of it. Right. Was that, so you had to do reports every year, every week your rookie year? Like, would these be like written out things, just like random like presentations or? Yeah, PowerPoints, it had to be PowerPoints, yeah. Really? Oh yeah, PowerPoint presentations. What, oh, what yeah. was the most intense PowerPoint you had to do? Define intense. Like, where you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm putting this much work into something that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with my job. <laughs> Hold on one second. You there? Yeah, I'm still here. There? Yeah, still here. I can't see. I'm someone's trying to call me real quick. Okay. Uh, where'd you go? So no, the most and the the reports didn't take long. It was just more of like throwing together some some PowerPoint with pictures and stuff like that. No, but the one Christmas time I had to do like a uh, like a naughty or nice list for everyone in the line room, and then would have to make up like the gifts that they would gift and if they were or that they would get and if they were on the naughty or nice list and reasonings behind it. And so it was yeah, but they honestly they didn't take that long to do, and I typically knock them out on every tuesday who was on your naughty list oh geez i can't remember probably rayola uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh probably uh luke cornelius lucas was probably on the naughty list too just because i always like to mess with him <laughs> you know, the, the last question i like to ask anyone that comes on this show is like what's the or last segment of questions is what's the worst and best piece of trash talk you ever heard Oh man. God, that's a good one. You know, my my thing, whatever, especially in the NFL, there weren't really a whole lot of guys never really typically talk trash just because it was at least when I played and was on the field, it was more of like people typically like you knew you're out there, this was your job and we're going to like do our job kind of thing as opposed to just like, it's very different than college, you know, college, you got like rivalries and stuff of that nature and you're not supposed to like this person, but now it's, you know, that was a difference, big difference between college and the NFL was NFL was people viewed that like, this is a job, you know, no one's out there trying to purposely hurt someone or, or, you know, guys were typically pretty respectful. Now, if you, you know, someone took a cheap shot at someone then obviously tempers would flare and you'd start to hear stuff of that nature but more times than not there wasn't wasn't a ton of trash talk really you know is there even a colleague someone who got you good or or that said something to you and you're just like what the (laughs) no i remember getting i got cheap shot at one time by uh alabama safety one time on a uh pick it was 2000 geez 12 11 or 12 one of them and i just got completely just blindsided by him and it was it was just one of those things where i didn't i didn't really say anything it was just one of like okay like i'm gonna i owe you one of those kind of things but no a lot of it a lot of it too is yeah there wasn't like I, I never tried to give like i never purposely tried to hurt anyone or things that i just tried to do what was in the confines of the rules yeah you know and that typically i think got Guys, you know, that you're going against, you can kind of sense that and have a respect, like a working respect for each other. Um, 
But, uh, but I had some other teammates that just loved to piss guys off and loved to talk trash. And, but that just wasn't really ever – wasn't my game, you know. Um, yeah, we always had those ones, too, where we said don't poke the bear. So, like, guys like Julius Peppers and stuff like that, you just don't – you just block them. You don't, you don't say anything. You just don't ever – just don't poke the bear. Who, who else was on the don't poke the bear list? I don't know. Just a little – I mean, all those, those – the guys that have been in it for, you know for a while like guys like sue and julius peppers and you know those the well-known guys like aaron donald those kind of things where you know just don't piss them off any more than what they already are because then they're really gonna ramp it up <laughs> a lot i got one more question so you mentioned sue you went against him your rookie year a decent amount what yeah. was what was that like? Because, I mean, Sue's stories here, as you know, are fairly legendary and everybody's got one. So that's yeah. a two-fold question of, like, what's your Sue story and what was it like to actually go against him every day in practice as a rookie when maybe he was also having his best season? Yeah, no, he was – I remember the first time going against him, it was just like – feels like the hands of God were just put on you. This is so strong. He's just so good at what he does. And then combine that with fairly on the other side, and I was like – that was, that was a good year for me. I learned a lot, learned a lot of different things about myself as a player and just going against those guys every day was, was good for me, you know, and, and I know a lot of people have different, probably have different viewpoints on Sue, different stories or different opinions and stuff. I, he helped me out a bunch, you know, especially in my first year, whenever Larry got hurt and I had to go in a guard and, going against each other in practice and stuff. And even before games, he, he would always give me things that he – pointers that he he would see that I would do or that other guards would do and say, hey, try – you know, hey, it's a good job you're doing this or keep that up or, hey, don't – you know, don't do not do this this way or try to do it this way kind of thing that, that he would tell me from a defensive line standpoint what they're looking for. And that, that helped me out quite a bit. Um, you know, all my dealings with, with Sue were great. He was extremely good to me and extremely helpful from a development standpoint. It's interesting you mention that because, like, every person I've talked to on this podcast that played in, like, the Sue era has only had nice things to say about him. So it feels like in the locker room maybe there was a little bit of a different perception, maybe the last couple of years of him than, than what the public thought. Definitely. I think it's a very different thing than what is publicly out there and what – he actually is at least the level that I knew him, which I don't know. I wouldn't say that we were, you know, we weren't best of friends or something like that, but we were just teammates, you know, and it was, he was someone that he, he helped me out quite a bit. I know that everyone, you know, might, they might've had great dealings with him or might not have had good dealings with him at all. Um, but just my experiences with him were, were very positive. Cool. Travis, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for taking some time and chatting with us. And uh, yeah. you know, we'll have you back again sometime uh, to talk about some more stuff. Yeah. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. want to thank Travis for coming on the show. As he alluded to, we've been going back and forth on trying to find a time for him to come on for a bit now. Really grateful that he was able to do it and that we were able to make it work out again hopefully you took something from the interview and i'm sure we'll have travis back on again in the future yeah it, it was it was fun to talk to him he and i have been chatting back and forth really since he retired just 
in general about life. He and I had gotten to know each other a bit in the locker room, just through open locker room periods. And as he mentioned in the interview, I wrote that story about Travis and his late friend and his father-in-law a few years back now. It was a very emotional story to write, um, one I'm still very, very proud of. And uh, I'll throw a link underneath on Twitter to that show, to that story. So that way, if you missed it before, you can read it again or read it for the first time. So thank you all again for listening. We'll be back again on Thursday with another episode. Thanks as always to my producer, David Woodley, to Blue Wire and to Regents Field and to Bet Online for sponsoring this podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Mike Rothstein. Follow me on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. And as we've mentioned before, wherever you subscribe to your podcast, please definitely consider subscribing and downloading to us, giving us a five-star review. All of that helps and helps to grow the podcast and helps us get better guests in the future. And with that, we will see you on Thursday. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.